You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Yo, what really happened on September 11th when 3,000 citizens were sent into heaven? Why the air of fake Bin Laden video confession? Why's the fairy tale version got so many questions? We're radical hijackers that were only using box cutters, sliced up pilots like a knife cutting hot butter. They had us frantic like a NASDAQ stock runner. They flew in planes like a Tom Cruise top gunner. But the story's focus, I noticed. Dick Chain ran out of living, drinking dots, right sodas. You only gotta look at how the buildings collapse. Bombs popping off this because I'm building a but controlled demolition had a bowl full of steel up at ground zero. That's the temperature to drown heroes. Fires in the buildings that were oxygen starved. People waving from the windows where the bombing is scarred. So let me get this straight. These fires couldn't melt people to glass, but they can melt 47 steel frames. World Trade 7 wasn't hit by a plane. And 5 p.m. collapsed, and they couldn't explain how for the third time in history a steel building melted. And an eight little pile had it happen since your history. The owners said, pull it, and admitted they knew. That's Larry Silverstein, the partner with the Black they got the echo cool They made six billion dollars They can blood money dripping off of necktie collars The South Tower burned for like 48 minutes Well the buildings in Madrid burned for 28 hours Shooting white hot flames but they never collapsed As besides Professor make them try and explain Welcome my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report I am your host James Corbett Podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan On this 5th day of September 2010 I'd like to take a moment, as always, to welcome the listeners to the Corbett Report podcast and ask you to check into my websites, including CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, ClimateGate.tv, and NewWorldNextWeek.com, as well as those websites that help to support the Corbett Report's work, including AltBib.com, MediaMonarchy.com, TragedyAndHope.com, and CascadiaPublicRadio.org. And I'd especially like to also thank all of those listeners that continue to send in their support, both monetary and otherwise, and continue to spread the word about the Corbett Report, because without you, the phenomenal rate of increase of listeners and viewers of the Corbett Report simply would not happen at all. And on that note, I'd like to especially ask for your help in getting the word out about this episode, which I think is a particularly important one. As you may have noticed, it's almost two hours long, and it's dealing with the ninth anniversary of 9-11. Today we have a phenomenal lineup of guests for you, including Bob Bowman and Kevin Ryan and Aidan Monahan and Luke Rikowski and many others. So it's a very exciting episode that I certainly think is valuable and will help to spread the word about the 9-11 Truth Movement and increase the, the importance and effect and impact of that movement. So I would like to ask your help in getting this uh, podcast out to everyone you know, and not only the podcast, but of course the vodcast, because today's episode will be available both on CorbettReport.com as an MP3 audio download and on YouTube.com slash CorbettReport as a video, which will be available in numerous installments, and I say will be because, of course, you may have noticed it is being uploaded even as I speak to YouTube in installments and should be completely done uploading by Monday morning. And it's going to be an incredible uh, amount of video and audio, so once again, I certainly hope that you can help me in spreading the word about this. On a completely different note, I'd like to draw attention to the fact that the Corbett Report podcast is fast approaching the 150th episode, and as with the 100th episode, I'd like to make the 150th episode a special viewer and listener participation episode. 
So I would like to call on the help of my listeners in putting together episode 150. Now, episode 150 will be arriving even sooner than you might expect, as I hope to be uh, starting something new here. I'm not sure if it will be continuous or how long it'll last, but I may be putting out two episodes per week in the near future. So, uh, in, on that note, episode 150 is currently scheduled for release on October 3rd. So, sometime before that date, and the sooner the better, obviously, I would like to ask my listeners to send in their ideas and suggestions for the following topic. How to defeat the New World Order. A pretty simple topic in some ways, but of course extremely complex, and it touches on pretty much every area of investigation that we cover in this podcast. So I would like to draw on my listeners' support for their ideas about what we can do to remove ourselves from the situation in which we find ourselves. And uh, all ideas are welcome, and I will be trying to feature as many of those ideas in episode 150 as I can. Of course, I can't guarantee that everyone's ideas will be included. It really depends on the amount of feedback we get. But I will certainly be doing my best to highlight what I think are the most interesting uh, responses I receive. Now, as with episode 100, I will be calling on people to either uh, send this information in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com, or a preference, of course, will be given to anyone who actually send, uh, leaves a voicemail message on 512-553-0297. That's the local Austin, Texas area number, which connects to my Skype account. And you can call that number to leave a voicemail message in which you can actually say what you think is your idea for how to defeat the New World Order. Once again, that's 512-553-0297. And if you're out of the U.S., you'll have to add whatever prefix, uh, magic prefix of digits you have to add in order to dial a long distance to another country. Once again, I would also like to ask people to specifically say either that I can use your name on the air or you leave a nickname or a username or anything you want. Just make sure that you include information about what name to use on air to attribute your remarks to. Other than that, I think that's all for this week, and I will be putting up a YouTube video explaining uh, a little bit more about episode 150, either at the end of this week or maybe early next week. So stay tuned to youtube.com slash Corbett Report for that. And of course, right now, stay tuned to youtube.com slash Corbett Report for the the YouTube version of today's episode. So now, without further ado, let's get straight into episode 144 of the Corbett Report. Thank you all for your continued support. Hello. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to episode 144 of the Corbett Report podcast, 9-11 Truth is Still the Issue. And I'm sure that my long-term listeners do not have to be told that 9-11 Truth is still the issue. 9-11 Truth is the issue for ending the wars of aggression that have wreaked such havoc on this world and so far resulted in the loss of thousands of Americans and over a million Iraqis, not to mention the scores of Afghanis and Pakistanis that the Western media finds too unimportant to even tally. 9-11 Truth is the issue for exposing one of the largest swindles in history, the $2.3 trillion that Donald Rumsfeld had pronounced missing from the Pentagon's coffers on September 10, 2001, the day before the attack, on the most heavily defended building in the world that left the very office that was investigating those missing trillions smoking in ruins. 9-11 Truth is the issue for unraveling decades of manipulation of foreign terrorist assets in calculated strategies of tension that have left thousands of dead bodies in their wake, all directly attributable to the machinations of intelligence agencies. 
9-11 truth is one of the few issues that gives any hope at striking at the true root of the system that has acted so concertedly against the interests of the people and resulted in the erection of a control grid to watch over the populace for the benefit of the Plutarchs, the well-connected, and the banksters. In short, 9-11 truth is one of the most important issues with which we can possibly hope to press forward, even now, nine years after those horrific events unfolded. And if there is any glimmer of hope to be had, it's in the fact that, by and large, 9-11 Truth is winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the public. More and more people are waking up to the reality that they have been sold a bill of goods with the 9-11 Commission, and that the official conspiracy of that day is false. Just one trivial indication of that that came very recently here in Japan, in a website called Japan Today, which ran a poll asking the simple question, do you believe Al-Qaeda was responsible for the attacks on 9-11? In this particular non-scientific poll, fully 46% of the respondents indicated that they were unwilling to say that Al-Qaeda was in fact responsible for the attacks, with the vast majority of that 46% believing that they in fact were not responsible. As I say, this is a trivial example, but it only serves as further confirmation of the dozens of polls over the last several years that find time and time again that the majority of the public suspect they are being lied to about what happened on 9-11, and that the overall majority or near majority of New Yorkers, Americans, and the global population believe that the U.S. government was complicit in those attacks. Yet more examples of how the public are waking up to the inconvenient truths about 9-11 present themselves whenever people are allowed to freely ask questions of one of the controlled mouthpieces of the official 9-11 story. Granted, this doesn't happen frequently, but when people are allowed to ask questions unscreened, the results are often indicative of the fact that very few politically informed citizens believe what they've been told about men with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world. One of the few major media venues to allow such a format is C-SPAN, where government officials and ex-officials are often brought on for unscripted and unscreened Q&A sessions with the general public. Michael Chertoff's appearance on C-SPAN some months back is well worth a watch for those who haven't seen it yet as an example of this type of overwhelming adherence to truth amongst so, so many in the public. Another great example came very recently when Michael Sheehan, an ex-counterterrorism official with the NYPD and ex-Clintonite, appeared on C-SPAN to take questions on the so-called War on Terror. John in Quincy, Illinois. Hi. Yes. Uh, There's a woman by the name of Jane Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, and she witnessed uh, five people in Oklahoma explosion down there and they built that building and uh, there were two military men wiring up she called uh, yellow sticks of butter which was C4 plastic they found out later right, right. Some what's there. the point here the point is why isn't anything done about this if you go to infowars.com you can right. see a YouTube picture of it so what are you suggesting is that the US military blew up Oklahoma City no I'm not suggesting anything I'm just saying there's a lot of odd things, just like the, the investigation of 9-11. Six, six of the ten commissioners said it's a cover-up and three of the attorneys. Great. Um, conspiracy theories. They abound in everything. Um, and I, I often talk to Americans that people who complain that overseas, uh, many of the Arab world think that the CIA or the Mossad, the Israelis, blew up the towers of 9-11. I, I remind my friends that criticize foreigners for having conspiracy theories that we have them here. Conspiracy theories are a natural thing to try to explain the unexplainable. How does these horrible things happen? And in fact, most of the investigations, congressional investigations on Oklahoma City, 
on 9-11, I think have been done very professionally. If I thought there was anything wrong with it, I'd be screaming about it, because I'm not trying to protect anybody other than the American people from terrorist acts. And I, I think the, those investigations, I've studied them in great detail, were, were pretty thorough. This scene comes from Pittsburgh. Greg, Independent Line. Hi. Hello. Um, I was listening to your guest, and now I'm even more concerned about the people you have on, your, on, the, on the air. He said that he uh, studied the 9-11 and the Oklahoma City bombing uh, investigations, and he thought they were done so well. Well, there were people that were on the, on the uh, committees that admitted that they were thwarted and that they didn't have the funding. You know, so if he's saying this, this is disturbing me. You know, did you have a comment on that? I've spoken to almost all the 9-11 Commission members, and I think they were generally satisfied with the report. At least they, of course, they have complaints about certain areas, perhaps not having enough time or enough funding or... Uh, certain areas, of, but the general contours, the general principal findings of the report, I don't think any of the members had a major problem with. And I, I, I know virtually all of them. I was interviewed by them extensively. They had stacks of my documents that I wrote when I was in the government that I think they generally got the story right. Was it perfect? It would be complaints and grumbling, perhaps. But I think generally what they outlined happened on 9-11 is what happened. And the same thing with Tim McVeigh and his his band of three people that blew up the uh, government buildings in Oklahoma City. Elizabeth and Liberty, uh, St. Louis, Bill, Democrat, you're on with Michael Sheehan. Yes, Mr. Sheehan, how are you doing today? Good. Uh, I'd like you to comment, since you're a terrorist expert, why don't you comment on all of the nanothermite that was found at the World Trade Center in the dust? And if you want to get at the terrorist issue, why don't you deal with the apartheid state of Israel? Well, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the dust of the World Trade Center, but I know there's a lot of questions and conspiracies about what happened there. I think it's pretty much what it was, a couple airplanes uh, driving into some big buildings that unfortunately created a perfect storm of heat and fire, and they collapsed. Do you, are you surprised at the level of suspicion about 9-11? No, I'm not. Why? It's, it's typical. Uh, we, we typically, we, not only Americans, but people abroad, almost always put a conspiracy theory on something. The murder of President Kennedy. I think there are many, many Americans who think that the Warren Commission was absolutely wrong. It's been looked at over and over and over again. I believe it probably got it right. Do I have questions about Oswald and Ruby? And of course, it's, it's, it's unexplainable how this can all happen. But at the end of the day, I happen to believe in what it is, but many, many Americans can't accept that. 9-11, other big events, it just seems to be a natural phenomena both here in the U.S. and certainly abroad, even worse abroad, the conspiracy theories are, are much more deep and, and worse outside the U.S. Time for a couple more calls with Michael Sheehan. We're talking about preventing domestic terrorism. Elkridge, Maryland, John, Independent Line. Hi. Good morning, Mr. Sheehan. Hi. I would like to just name a couple people, and if you could tell me yes or no if you are familiar with these people, and then have a follow-up. Okay. Um, Major General Albert Stelkebein. Um, John, go ahead, list your people, ask your question, and we'll get a response. Okay. It's Colonel George Nelson, Lieutenant Colonel Shelton Langford, Commander Ralph Colston. There's 200 more military people at a site called Patriots Question 9-11. I was going to ask you if you were familiar with that site, and if not, you and everyone listening to this 
should definitely check it out. Thank cool. you very much, John, another conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and a lot of people question it. And uh, there, I, again, if I thought there was something unusual about 9-11, I would be saying, sitting here today talking about it. I have no agenda to protect anybody. To be sure, it is extremely heartening to see an establishment mouthpiece being grilled so thoroughly on the lies that perpetuate the myth of the all-pervasive terrorist conspiracy that we're facing. And given that the lapdog media has been, it has done its dutiful best to keep the public in the controlled war on terror paradigm with staged distractions like the Ground Zero Mosque controversy, it represents quite a victory for the people against the multi-trillion dollar military-industrial terror media complex that goes to such pains to stifle independent thought. However, it's important to keep in mind that the 9-11 Truth Movement, to the extent that it constitutes a movement with all of the attendant problems associated with such a concept, it's important for us to keep in mind that it is possible to win a battle and yet lose the war. It's possible for 9-11 Truth to win the battle for the hearts and minds of the people, but lose the war of affecting actual change in the system that made that attack possible, or achieving true justice for the victims of September 11th. As we stand here now on the brink of the ninth anniversary of 9-11, we find that yet another year has come and gone without a new independent subpoena-powered investigation into into the attacks, with no real end to the wars of aggression waged worldwide in those attacks' name, and with no help for the sick and dying 9-11 responders from the very government that admittedly sentenced them to death with their lies about the quality of the air at Ground Zero. Now, I'm not here to be maudlin or demotivational, but it's important to be realistic about what has been achieved and what can be achieved. Rome was not built in a day. Neither will it be deconstructed in a day. But still... The seeming lack of progress on these key issues can be used constructively as a basis for reflecting on the state of 9-11 truth and where the movement should be heading. In today's episode, we are going to draw on some of the many notable proponents of 9-11 truth to ponder where we are and where we're going. Now, I mentioned that the term movement, as in 9-11 truth movement, is problematic, and rest assured, it is. Movements tend to have leaders... They tend to be top-down, hierarchical structures that self-organize into rigid groups. They develop orthodoxies and heresies, and they discourage independent thinking. To the extent that this is what is meant by 9-11 Truth Movement, then certainly I have no wish to be part of it. But to the extent that we can think of the 9-11 Truth Movement as a group of independent, politically concerned citizens who have come together, despite their differences, to tackle one of the most important threats to our planet or to our species, then what we see in 9-11 Truth is one of the most transformative political movements to arrive on the world historical stage since the days of the American Revolution. With that in mind, let's turn to an interview that I recently had the chance to conduct with Dr. Robert Bowman, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel who flew 101 missions over Vietnam, the former head of the Star Wars defense program under Ford and Carter, and one of that program's most outspoken critics under Reagan. And a nuclear physicist with a PhD from Caltech. He's also a vocal critic of the official 9-11 story and has spoken out for 9-11 truth for years. Dr. Bowman's also a bridge builder who's attempting to bring together both the traditional left and right ends of the political spectrum in a revolutionary movement that seeks to return the U.S. to a government guided by constitutional principles. That movement is called The Patriots and can be found at thepatriots.us. I started by asking Dr. Bowman about his movement and how 9-11 Truth fits into the deconstruction of this left-right paradigm. 
Well, the Patriots is an organization devoted to a government that follows the Constitution, honors the truth, and serves the people. We're bringing people together from all across the political spectrum, from the far left to the far right, uh, to come together, uh, put our disagreements aside, and take back the country for the people. Uh, once we have done that, uh, there'll be plenty of time to discuss uh, the best way to serve the people, because that's what we all want to do. And, uh, you know, disagreements about how exactly to uh, have uh, a health care system without uh, the profit, the overhead, the red tape, and the uh, interference between doctor and patient of the insurance companies by kicking them out of health care altogether. And then exactly how we implement that uh, is something that the left and the right will have to discuss from a single-payer national health program uh you know, as as wanted by the left, to a return to pay uh, fee for service uh, that uh, the libertarians want. Uh, we can discuss those things after we have taken back our country, because right now uh, we have a fascist government, a government controlled by the corporations, and everything is for the profit of the wealthy elite. And we need the government that serves the people. In order to do that, we've got to get them to return to following the Constitution and to honoring the truth instead of continually lying to the American people. And so that's what the Patriots is all about. Well, I agree wholeheartedly with that uh, mission objective because it seems so obvious to me that one of the key ways in which the uh, power elite managed to maintain their positions as power elite is to keep the public divided amongst one, one another over issues that are ultimately not of such profound significance that they couldn't wait to be dealt with uh, uh, later at some later time. So absolutely, it's so important to bring these uh, two sides of this phony division together again. And so that's why I think the Patriots.us is such an exciting idea. And I, I know that you are a, a proponent of 9-11 truth and have been speaking out on that subject for years. And I, I wonder how this yes. relates to the 9-11 truth movement and the idea of bringing people together under something that, that doesn't have anything to do with the conventional left or right. Well, uh, that's one of the great values I see in the 9-11 truth movement. I mean, not only is 9-11 truth absolutely critical to ending the uh, corporate wars of aggression and ending the taking away of our constitutional rights through things like the Patriot Act and the Military Commissions Act, and ending the stealing uh, of the financial resources of uh, working Americans to uh, pump all the money up to the billionaires. Uh, not only is 9-11 truth critical to that, but uh, it is so valuable in its own right because it has brought left and right together. People all across the political spectrum who understand that we have been massively lied to uh, are coming together to promote the truth and to uh, demand a new independent investigation of 9-11. So that's one of its great values is that it shows that the left and the right can work together. That certainly is true, but unfortunately, I think now as we stand at the uh, the brink of the ninth anniversary of 9-11, we see, I think the, a majority of the people are starting to, to wake up and to question the, what really happened on 9-11, but unfortunately, I don't know if this is converting into political action in the way that it, it 
it seemed to be headed on for so many years. What, what do you think of the, the where 9-11 truth is now and, and where it's likely to be headed in the next few years? Well, on the one hand, the 9-11 truth movement uh, is growing and more people are becoming aware. On the other hand, uh, the 9-11 truth movement is being infiltrated by people who create divisions and who introduce uh, uh, non-essential items to get people to argue over them. And so we have to be vigilant to that and stick to the, the, the basis. Uh, you know, you get people arguing about whether or not there were really planes that hit the World Trade Center or whether it was just holograms. You get people uh, arguing about well, were, were there many nukes in the basement of the World Trade Center, or, or were they destroyed by scalar Tesla weapons from space? And all sorts of ridiculous things that uh, don't really matter to our basic mission. Uh, see, our mission in the 9-11 Truth Movement is not to prove how it was done and who did it. That's the job of the new investigation with subpoena powers. Our job is only to show that the official conspiracy theory told us by the Bush administration uh, is impossible, is a lie, and therefore we need a new investigation to find out the truth and to find out exactly how it happened and who did it. Uh, we, we really should not speculate too much on... Uh, the mechanisms for how it was done, and the people who were involved. Uh, we don't need to do that. All we need to do is keep showing that the lies we have been told are impossible, and that is the way we can keep the 9-11 Truth Movement together. Well, that's absolutely right, and it's so important to stress that, because as you say, the 9-11 uh, Truth Movement is growing in numbers, and we really have demonstrated, I think, time and again, the absolute impossibility of the official conspiracy theory that we're being fed. But unfortunately, um, there are people who are, uh, for whatever reasons, attempting to divert uh, the, to different issues. So that's why I think the Patriots.us is one important political branch of a movement that might help to actually bring the truth and justice about 9-11 to the forefront. So tell us again about some of the people who were involved with the Patriots. Well, we actually have uh, 24,000 folks on our uh, mailing list. There's uh, power in numbers and also safety in numbers. Uh, and uh, uh, this is an organization that I created 28 years ago. And... Uh, all of us at the Patriots are volunteers, uh, our staff, our board of directors, everybody. We have generals and admirals from all the military services on our advisory board. We have uh, professors from around the world, Australia and Egypt and Israel. Uh, so so a varied uh, group. And uh, uh, we are showing uh, the big picture of uh, how the uh, government has been taken over by the corporations and what we need to do to take it back for the people. And, of course, 9-11 is an important part of that. And uh, there are a lot of people out there who say, oh, yeah, we've been lied to. Okay, so, so what? It's ancient history, and 
nothing's ever going to happen. One of the things that I do with my talks around the country is to uh, show why it's important to expose the truth, why it is essential to expose the truth. Because, you know, after a couple of years of uh, Barack Obama being president and the war is continuing, uh, even though they say, well, you know, we're ending combat in Iraq, we've still got 50,000 troops there and probably close to 100,000 mercenaries. And, uh, uh, of course, we've got more than that now in Afghanistan. And the war is being extended into Pakistan, and they're talking again about the possibility of war against Iran. So uh, it's obvious now that uh, all of these corporate wars of aggression and the Patriot Act and everything is going to continue no matter which party is in power. So (laughs) it's going to take a lot more than just... uh, uh, you know, getting your pet party elected, whether it's Republican or Democrat, uh, it's obvious that they're both owned at the highest level by the same powerful interests, uh, the same powerful interests who want to keep 9-11 truth from coming out. Dr. Bob Bowman, Deconstructing the Left-Right Paradigm at thepatriots.us. One of the problems inherent in what Dr. Bowman is addressing at the Patriots is the problem of breaking people out of the conditioning that they've been put under to accept that the world itself is divided into left and right issues, liberal and conservative positions, Republican and Democratic worldviews. Certainly the indoctrination in this phony paradigm runs deep and it can be hard to break out of it. Republicans might think of 9-11 truth as a far-left issue. Democrats might think of OKC truth as a far-right issue. They are both wrong, as both movements represent a completely different worldview than the simplistic red versus blue, left versus right, liberal versus conservative binary thinking allows. 9-11 truth is neither liberal nor conservative. It is merely an attempt to discover the truth about 9-11. So to break people out of their conditioning, perhaps what is called for is not political polemics or verbiose tirades on the political system. Perhaps what is really needed is just to focus on those facts that represent the most compelling evidence that we are being lied to about 9-11. It sounds simple, but for those who have been immersed in the 9-11 truth movement for years, and who are now well-versed in all the ins and outs of the various facts, dates, names, connections, speculations, and all the other things associated with the highly specialized 9-11 truth information that comes out these days may be difficult, if not impossible, to follow for those who haven't been following the movement to such an extent. That's why I was quite impressed to see a recent op-ed by Kevin Ryan, which appeared in the Bloomington Herald Times. Kevin Ryan is an Underwriters Laboratories whistleblower who lost his job when he started to point out the sloppy nature and outright falsehoods of the UWL investigation into the WTC collapse. Since then, he has been a prolific researcher and is the co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, producing detailed reports on things like the connections between the world's nanothermite experts and the government investigation of the collapse, He has also produced detailed reports on who had access to the towers before 9-11 and in what capacity. But in this recent op-ed, he strips down all the jargon and the convoluted details behind some of the more arcane 9-11 subjects and produces a simple, easy-to-understand account of what 9-11 truth is and why it's important. I recently had the honor of talking to Kevin Ryan about his research, the op-ed itself, and where he thinks 9-11 truth 
is heading. Well, one of the things that spurred me to get you on the program today was an op-ed that you had uh, published in the Bloomington Herald Times earlier this month on the subject of 9-11. Not because of any new explosive evidence that you uncover in that op-ed, but precisely because it is such a basic piece for those of us who are already well-versed in 9-11 truth. And in that piece, you talk about false flag attacks and why the blowback theory of 9-11 is insufficient to account for uh, things like the air defense stand down and the explosive residue in the WTC dust. And as I say, it's an extremely basic piece for those of us who have been researching 9-11 truth for years, but I think it's valuable precisely for that reason, since it seems that, that perhaps as a movement, we have stopped to a large extent reaching out to the public to try to get them to understand the basic premises that we're working from. And to that end, I think this type of op-ed is an extremely valuable way of getting the word out about 9-11 Truth and continuing to expand the movement, even as we head into the ninth anniversary of those events. So maybe you can tell us about this op-ed and what prompted you to write it. Well, I, this is the second um, op-ed that I've had published in the Bloomington paper. And the first one, let me give you some background. The first one came after our first presentation at the theater downtown in 2007. And uh, we had um, some good coverage at first about this this event. And then we ended up packing the house. Over almost 700 people came to this free event in downtown Bloomington. And um, what we ended up seeing then was kind of a recoil backlash from the editorial board of the of the local paper. They, I think, were shocked that we had such a good turnout and such a good response. They had a, an online poll in the paper where they uh, asked if people would, would, would possibly agree with uh, the local group uh, and 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 uh, or whether they thought we were all crazy. And uh, the overwhelming majority agreed with uh, the Mindland Working Group, and, and I think that embarrassed them further to the point where they ended up writing kind of a nasty editorial. Uh, and, uh, and I wrote a guest column in response, and they uh, kind of grudgingly uh, published it. But this is my second, um, because they've seen, I think, over the years that we're not... Uh, intentional troublemakers of any kind. We're not trying to uh, tear down our country or, or um, you know, anyone who's acting sincerely in good faith. We certainly are not the enemies of any any uh, other Americans. So we're just looking for answers because it's so important to us. We feel into our children's future to know what happened on 9/11. It's such a it's such a turnkey event. Um, and so I wrote this new column and I, and I sent it in and, and believe it or not, they published it in less than two weeks, just immediately. Um, I was very pleased with that. As you said, I, I, I tried to approach this one a little bit differently. I didn't have a lot of the physical, uh, evidence or the scientific, um, details in this op-ed. It was more like, um, you know, let's talk about this buzzword conspiracy that people have used to kind of dismiss the idea of an alternative explanation for 9-11 and talk about the fact that conspiracies are um, central to our our legal system, for one thing. You know, conspiracies are everywhere if, if you believe our, our courts and our judges. But um, what we what we do with 9-11 
and things that are emotionally uncomfortable like 9-11 is we say it's a conspiracy theory, meaning that, um, you know, somehow we've redefined the, the term conspiracy to mean something where only, um, you know, it's not really believable that people would conspire to commit crimes and certainly totally unbelievable in this redefinition that any powerful people um, would ever participate in a conspiracy to commit a crime like 9-11. Of course, that's, that makes no sense at all, and, and that's what the op-ed was trying to say. But also, uh, it tried to explain, uh, from my viewpoint, what some of the basic underst- uh, basically commonly accepted theories um, are like. So the blowback theory, I talked about this idea of the blowback theory, where these poor people who just happen to live on the most strategically important lands in the world, you know, where all the oil reserves are at and the gas, natural gas reserves, um, those, those are the only people who uh, can be conspiracy uh, criminals. And they attack us not because they happen to live on those lands, but because we've been ha- we've been bombing them and blockading them for so long. So I, I say, okay, blowback is one thing. And the really hard line people draw who, who believe in that blowback theory is that they would never believe something called managed blowback. What I would call managed blowback is where the powerful folks would, would recognize this kind of retaliation, that these kind of irrational acts of violence called terrorism that, that, is, that constitutes blowback. They would never recognize that this is happening and then try to leverage it for themselves, for their benefit. That's not in any way possible to the people who believe blowback. And that's what it seems to me, that there's this really hard psychological line between blowback and manipulation of blowback. You know that I'm just trying to find that spot where people can't go. You know, if you know what I mean, that that point psychologically where um, you know everything falls apart with rational thinking. Yes, if you use right. if you use rational thinking with 9/11, there's no way you're going to believe the official story. It's just it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's just this long string of incredible and unbelievable events. So and, I'm trying to find that spot. And Go ahead. Perha- and perhaps uh, another way for people to understand the concept of uh, managed blowback would be to investigate the, the concept of the strategy of tension, and that would lead people to things like Operation Gladio and uh, P2OG and other such uh, examples and evidence that we have from history of things that are perhaps comparable, or at least help to give a better understanding. But uh, Kevin Ryan, as, as you well know, we stand here on the break, brink of the ninth anniversary of the events of 9-11. And as I sit here, I begin to wonder if this brink is in fact a precipice of a sort, because it seems to me that it's very obvious that we are winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the public with a greater number of people waking up seemingly every day to the, the, the truth of what happened on that day, as opposed to the official conspiracy theory. But the further away from the attacks that we get, uh, the, the harder it becomes to achieve the, the true goal, uh, I think, of the 9-11 truth movement, which is to see uh, the creation of an independent investigation with subpoena powers. So what are your thoughts on where the 9-11 truth movement stands right now and the dangers and opportunities that this type of anniversary presents? Well, um, the ninth anniversary is um, for some of us, um, you know, uh, four, five, six or more years uh, of investigation already. So there's 
There's a lot of people who've done a lot of good work who I think to some extent are tiring out. But also, there are a lot of new people who are coming along. So the the, uh, the people just realizing finally that um, you know they've they've seen enough. They've seen enough of the the facts and the questions, and they also agree that we need a a, a real explanation for 9/11. So I think that there are a couple of challenges at this time, and that is um, people who are just beginning and and still have a lot of energy and and want to look into this. There's so much that needs to be done. There's just so much information that so many questions that need to be answered still. And we can personally, I believe we can do a lot of that. We don't necessarily, while we're calling for a subpoena-based investigation, have to just let it go. We can we can dig in and find out things like who had access to the buildings and who potentially could have shut down the air defenses and why was Dick Cheney tracking Flight 77 and lots of questions we can work on. But there, we we have to be clear that um, there's been a lot of pitfalls in the past and a lot of um, um, difficulties in um, um, you know asking questions that maybe aren't as valuable and don't get us to justice as quickly, or maybe are intentionally um, brought up in order to discredit us from within. And so, if we can get better at bringing new people along who aren't going to hit those snags as easily, who are going to get past that better. Um, I think that that would help a lot. Um, additionally, you know, I, I, I just noticed this um, Muslim, this mosque in, at Ground Zero discussion really appears to be, um, in my view, a psychological operation of, of some sort. Because really, not only is it not really a mosque and it's not really at Ground Zero, but... Um, the people, the camps that are dividing up, they they just they appear to be arguing about whether or not it's okay for Muslims who committed the crimes of 9/11, who are part of a you know the people who committed the crimes of 9/11 were Muslims is kind of the default assumption, and let's argue from there. So when I see an article from in the Washington Post from Karen Hughes, who used to be the spokesman for George W. Bush, who's kind of framing this whole discussion as whether or not it's okay for Muslims who were, you know, the group that attacked us on 9-11 to build a mosque or to not build a mosque, I think we've already seen that this discussion is off base because if you read some of David Ray Griffin's work, it's, it's a really good way to see um, some of the many reasons why it probably was not Muslims who attacked us on 9-11. The people who attacked us, who were accused of attacking us, uh, did nothing uh, Muslim-like. And um, also there are a lot of other reasons. But So what my point is here is that we, we should watch these... these um, mainstream discussions as they come up and, and and make sure that we're not kind of buying into um, um, assumptions that are built into to, to that kind of uh, discussion. So that's another thing we can do here nine years later because I think you're right. Um, people in, in uh, kind of who have vested interest in not seeing the truth come out are are clear that uh, there are a lot of people questioning 9-11, just a, a huge number now, and they see, uh, they see people like you and I in their communities, 
you know, and, and after however many years, they can no longer just blow us off because we're not going away. We're still going to be here. We're still going to be asking the questions and sharing the information on the 10th anniversary. Kevin Ryan's writings can be read on 911blogger.com. Well, if Kevin Ryan has produced an easy entry-level introduction to 9-11 Truth, it is still obviously extremely important that serious research continues as we uncover more and more about those attacks, even now, nine years on. But how can new information continue to come out from events that occurred so long ago? Three words. Freedom of information. The Freedom of Information Act represents an invaluable tool by which researchers can use the processes and functions of the government agencies against them to bring details of the investigation to light. And perhaps nobody has been more prolific at filing and following through with FOIA requests related to 9-11 than Aidan Monahan. Aidan Monahan is an independent 9-11 researcher who has produced numerous reports videos, and writings about 9-11 Truth, and who blogs regularly at 911blogger.com. Over the years, he has filed hundreds of FOIA requests with numerous government agencies. Sometimes the information he is able to uncover through his requests are significant, as when he discovered discrepancies between the various flight histories of the 9-11 aircraft that have been given by the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. Sometimes the information is valuable because it shows what the government is not willing to release. As with one of his ongoing requests for information from the FBI, in which the FBI is actually arguing that all of their records related to the 9-11 investigation are in fact not subject to FOIA requests. But there is no doubt that some valuable information has been garnered over the years through this process. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Aidan Monahan about his FOIA requests and how others can join in trying to pry some of this key information out of government agencies. One of the interesting documents that have come out recently was regarding NIST and the, an internal document that was a rejection of request for information regarding the model that they used for their so-called uh, computer model, which showed the collapse of WTC7 in quotation marks. Um, I, I don't know, was that, was that you, you that actually put in that request, or was that another researcher? No, that was, those requests were uh, the results of others. Um, I recently followed up myself just to see what what answer I could obtain, and I obtained the same answer, and that basically these files are exempt from public disclosure because they, uh, according to the NIST director, may jeopardize public safety. And basically the the whole matter has been taken away from the Freedom of Information Act and, and put into the hands of Congress because Congress created the law Basically, the the, uh, the the escape hatch for NIST to, via the director, put this information off limits. Well, explain that process for people. How how exactly are they claiming this is jeopardizing public safety? Uh, it's basically just a very conclusory answer. They don't really explain how or why the information is believed to jeopardize public safety. It's just that around 2002, I believe, Congress created this little escape hatch for an agency such as NIST uh, during an investigation to uh, basically put certain information off limits if it's believed to uh, jeopardize public safety.
Just incredible. And and one of the other incredible things that your research has uncovered that I haven't seen get a lot of attention, but I thought was was quite interesting when it came out, was the uh, the information that you uncovered about a company called Turner Construction and the renovations that they were doing in the Twin Towers right up till the very morning of 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about Turner Construction? Yes, um, some other FOIA researchers had gotten hold of some records regarding uh, some projects that had uh, been proposed in the year before 9-11 by the uh, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, the parties who were managing the property at the time, and certain uh, contractor names popped up in those records, and uh, I decided to do some cross-research on some of that information and eventually determined that the CEO of the company at that time is, is somebody who later became a very rather close associate of President Bush himself. Uh, later became the mayor of Dallas, Texas, later attended um, economic policy meetings, international economic policy meetings with President Bush overseas with other foreign heads, um, was appointed as a, uh, a, a director of an organization known as the White House Fellows by President Bush. Uh, I don't recall the exact year. This is after 9-11. And... Uh, who turned out to, who turns out today to be uh, a neighbor of President Bush within a couple of miles, I believe. So uh, yeah, some interesting you know associations tied up you know turned up rather there, and uh, also uh, the uh, director of NIST at that time also later became. Um, well, I, I don't recall the exact details. I, I would have to pull it up in front of me again in order to recall uh, every detail, but. Uh, yeah, there was definitely some uh, interesting associations between uh, the CEO of Turner Construction and President Bush. That's right. And and tell us about what Turner Construction was doing or what we now don't know about what they were doing in the World Trade Center. Right. There was a property management uh, assessment of the property about nine months before 9-11. And within that um, assessment was proposed work upon the uh, steel supportive columns within the elevator shafts, for example, among other many other things. And some of the deficiencies noted were rusting upon these steel columns and uh, abatement of asbestos-containing uh, fireproofing material. Removal of that, removal of that was also proposed. Um, so when one says that uh, there was no opportunity for any unscrupulous party to... Uh, tinker around within the World Trade Center, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the uh, demolition or controlled demolition route, um, that, that answer would certainly seem to be false. There seems to have been uh, ample opportunity for uh, some uh, unscrupulous work to have been performed there possibly, and certainly there was uh, significant work being done in that area. And it turns out that Turner Construction was more than likely the uh, entity doing this work. It appears that uh, they were working up until the day of very morning of 9/11 on the on the property, and going back as far as three or four years at least, according to some records. And uh, also happened to turn out that uh, Turner Construction also built the headquarters of, of an organization known as the Naval Sea Systems Command, which is a division of the Department of Defense. And one of their divisions, the Indian Head Naval Surface Warfare Center just happened to be one of the only kids on the block at the time, so to speak, who were developing the energetic nanothermitic materials 
that were later discovered in the World Trade Center dust. Right, absolutely. And and I'm sure my listeners will be familiar with Kevin Ryan and his work looking at some of the connections of the people involved in, in testing and creating these nanothermitic materials. Absolutely, it just keeps going deeper and deeper. And uh, again, very telling that uh, apparently the uh, the records describing the work that they were doing and the projects they were doing in the World Trade Center were destroyed in the World Trade Center on 9-11, along with other key documents that we know from, for example, the uh, the Enron investigation records and things like that. So just more th- valuable documents that were destroyed on That's that day. That's correct. Yeah, yeah I, I did ask for the, uh, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey for any records uh, re- regarding Turner Construction for work done on the property, the World Trade Center, and they did advise me that the, all that information was destroyed on 9-11. I'm currently trying to seek some ways around that uh, obstacle. I, for example, in order to perform major work on properties within New York City, one has to obtain permission from the New York City Department of Buildings and permits to proceed with work. And I've finally been able to find the Freedom of Information contact for that organization and have some requests pending and also uh, other requests with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey for copies of these uh, permits that they may have had, which may very well indicate who was performing this work there at the World Trade Center and maybe some other information, hopefully. And those, those requests are pending and hopefully we'll have those answers shortly. Well, incredible. I, I certainly look forward to that and once again would urge people to go to 911blogger.com to, to keep an eye on that, uh, that information resource for more information as it, as it develops on that. But uh, Aidan Monahan, I, I think it's self-evident that the, the tack that you're taking with Freedom of Information Act requests is an extremely fruitful area of research and, and you never really know what kind of information you're going to end up with. Uh, when when you put out these requests, and I think that's one of the the sort of wild cards that that um, we have in this research, in, in hopefully getting out some some of the nuggets that can lead us uh, towards other areas of research and other things that we didn't even think to ask before. So it's an extremely effective tool, and to that end, I think maybe it would be a good idea to to encourage other people to take up this tool because obviously you're doing an incredible amount of work but you can't do everything yourself so so tell us a little bit walk us through the process of putting in a freedom of information act request and what really goes into this uh, whole process um okay sure yeah all federal agencies have access to uh, or basically operate through freedom of information act laws and uh if you know what you're looking for and you know who has what you're looking for, submitting a request is really not that difficult lately because uh, most agencies have gone to the electronic means of doing so. And basically, visiting their websites will allow anyone to find, eventually, without too much uh, trouble, the links to the uh, Freedom of Information Act officers of each agency and uh, the uh, email addresses for those people. And if you know what you're looking for, you can basically fire off a request within five or ten minutes. So basically, as a rule of thumb, I assume it's uh, best to keep the the requests as specific as you possibly can. Sure. And in many cases, I've found that uh, the, the officers are willing to work with you. If they don't feel they have enough information, they'll contact you and ask for more. And, and, and most of them are very cooperative, uh, except for the Department of Justice, that, you know, because of everything being exempt from disclosure, they just 
give you very short answers and so forth. But you know, most of the other agencies have been you know helpful when I've uh, needed it. Well, then on the flip side of that, have you? Uh, do you think it might be fruitful to to cast the net widely and then narrow it down with the help of the the Freedom of Information Officer? Um, yeah, I, I've done that uh, specifically, and um, they they will come back and you know in, in some cases and say we need something a little more general or rather more specific. Um, there haven't been a whole lot of agencies that I've really been able to focus on because. Given the the issue of 9/11, only so so many agencies may have been associated with you know the event itself. You know the FAA, NIST, uh, Department of Justice, FBI, uh, CIA. Well, you know, Secret Service, um, CIA to a lesser extent. Right, exactly, and and obviously those are the places where people should be concentrating their their firepower, so to speak, in the in requesting these documents and, and trying to get some of these uh, nuggets of information out. But uh, well, let's step back for a moment and take a look at the bigger picture of what we're really doing here, because obviously we are uncovering some of the information that is hidden in the corridors of power that that actually is there for the most part and and we're just trying to get it out to the public about one of the uh the defining political moments of our generation so certainly this is no uh no trivial matter in any stretch of the imagination and as we sit here on the the brink of the ninth anniversary of of the 9-11 attacks I guess there's always the uh, the fear that the although we've clearly won the hearts and minds of many of the people who have begun questioning the official story of 9/11, uh, the the political and the judicial action on that front seems to be further away than ever, and it almost seems like uh, maybe a losing momentum. So uh, my question is, a, I guess two part: a How do you stay motivated and and to keep doggedly pursuing these truths? And and b what do you think is the the ultimate direction that we're heading at this point, and, and what do you see playing out from this point? Um, your first question: What what causes me to continue to, to pursue this? Right. Yeah. Um, just my belief that we're we're very close as as uh, as a uh, as a movement to uh, really connecting all of the dots here. You know, thanks to the research of you know other other parties and so forth, who've all collectively connected many dots, and I just I just feel like the answers to a couple of very compelling topics are not too far, in my opinion. They're they're really not that far away. I, with a few more steps, I believe we can finally connect a lot of dots here that will create you know a very a, a fairly clear picture of really who is responsible for all of this. Once again, Aidan Monahan of 911blogger.com. Well, as I'm sure any of the listeners who's, who have listened to the entire interview with Aidan Monahan on CorbettReport.com are aware, it doesn't take much digging into the 9-11 Truth Research community to understand that FOIA requests have had some remarkable successes in recent times, 
bringing out some very interesting information. And another example from a different set of researchers that recently came out was the example of an internal NIST memo that came out through a Freedom of Information request that showed that NIST is actually denying the public access to the data that they use for their computer model that supposedly shows how WTC7 fell for two seconds at freefall gravitational acceleration due to simple office fires. Well, the data for the model that they used to come up with that result is not available to the public. It is not available to freedom of information requests. Why? Because that information is, quote-unquote, jeopardizing to public safety. Absolutely incredible. And more incredible information that came out recently due to freedom of information requests is a treasure trove of information, over three terabytes of data, uh, videos of the WTC collapses that were used by NIST in the formulation of their report on the collapse of the Twin Towers in Building 7. Again, this is a treasure trove of information. Many of these videos have never been seen before, and they are only now being released bit by bit over the internet by the people who managed to garner these videos through a Freedom of Information request. This was the topic of the most recent episode of the New World Next Week, my weekly video series with James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. New World Next Week, of course, is available at NewWorldNextWeek.com. So let's take a listen to part of the recent episode where we discuss this treasure trove of new 9-11 videos. International Center for 9-11 Studies secures release of thousands of photos and videos from NIST. The International Center for 9-11 Studies has secured the release of hundreds of hours of video footage and tens of thousands of photographs used by the National Institute of Standards and Technology for its investigation of the collapse of the World Trade Center Twin Towers and Building 7. This material is being released to the center under the Freedom of Information Act in response to a lawsuit the center fired against NIST. Center filed a FOIA request with NIST on January 26, 2009, seeking production of, quote, all of the photographs and videos collected, reviewed, cited, or in any other way used by NIST during its investigation of the World Trade Center building collapses, end quote. Following several unsuccessful attempts to get NIST to even acknowledge receipt of the request, the center was forced to file a lawsuit on May 28, 2009. Shortly after the lawsuit was filed, this request was finally assigned a reference number, and NIST began periodically releasing batches of responsive records. To date, the center has received over 300 DVDs and several external hard disk drives that contain responsive records, more than 3 terabytes of data so far, and NIST has indicated that additional records will be released in the future. Now, this goes on, and this 9-11 blogger posting goes over just some of the first few videos that the center has started to go through. So again, this is terabytes of information. So James, let's get your take on this story and and how much information we're probably going to be able to find in this. Right. Well, uh, first, um, of course, this is another example of people taking Freedom of Information Act requests and and getting an incredible treasure trove of data through that. So people who recently heard my uh, interview with Aidan Monaghan might uh, recognize this coming out to the fore again. So my hat's off to everyone who's out there getting this type of information through these FOIA requests. But as for this uh, particular data set that they've managed to uncover, three terabytes of data is incredible. And uh, of course, we're all looking forward to 
I guess, uh, sinking our teeth into the, the meat and potatoes when, it, when it's finally released. And people should take a look at uh, 911datasets.org, where I guess uh, eventually this will all be put up as a downloadable uh, BitTorrent, and there will be different ways of getting this information. But uh, suffice it to say, just the first few videos that they've posted up are already extremely interesting. Um, some interesting uh, videos of the collapses, um, and especially uh, of explosions and things happening right before the collapses. Um, there's also some uh, there's some visual and some audio, uh, uh, I guess, segments of interest. And one of the uh, things that I found interesting was that there are a, a, a few videos of the WTC7 collapsing that seem to have been edited by NIST to actually exclude the moment of the initiation of the collapse. So there's a couple of videos where it's a stationary shot and the, uh, the camera will be taking the building and then it suddenly cuts to the building already starting to fall. So um, there's definitely been some editing going on, and there's even uh, a couple of videos where the audio of the collapse is missing, but then the audio kicks in after the collapse is finished, which is uh, highly suspicious, to say the least, considering NIST's main position is that there is no evidence whatsoever for explosions. Well, how can we know that if they've edited out the audio or edited out, out the beginning of the collapse? So... Again, just extremely interesting things to take a look at, and uh, I certainly hope people will take a look at this blogger post to start looking through the videos for themselves. Absolutely. Well, and I think one of the comments already there does note that, well, and I'll first say that the center has said the things they're putting out is exactly how they've received them from NIST. They haven't edited them except to maybe take a smaller extract. But there was a comment that noted that, of course, light, travels faster than sound, so you're going to see it before you hear it. So again, there's just a massive amount of information, and especially Building 7, and that ties in with, of course, all the things we know and don't know about the case of Barry Jennings. It also coincides with the buildingwhat.org campaign from nyccan.org, trying to get a commercial running to get folks asking the question, building what? So, uh, again, James, as we head into the ninth anniversary, and I know you have, again, as we've mentioned, you've got a massive 9-11 ninth anniversary episode you're working on. And, yeah, you just talked about FOIAs and Aiden Monahan, and I think all of these things are, are ultimately good news. I think so, too. Ultimately, it, it shows that we are winning and we are prying out more information. And, uh, and remember, I mean, it was uh, over a decade before the public saw the Zapruder film with JFK, so... There might still be that film out there that we haven't seen yet. And, and of course, before we have to move to our second story, James, you and I would both note that we would also love to see, you know, tens of thousands of videos and hundreds of documents and terabytes of data also concerning the drills and the insider trading and the P-TECH story, but perhaps we'll have to wait for that. A veritable landslide of information, so I certainly hope that people will stay tuned to 911datasets.org for more information on those videos as it becomes available, and I hope people will spend some time going through some of these videos to look for new anomalies and new evidence that has not yet been uncovered. And I'm sure one of the people who will be doing so is Richard Gage. And for anyone who has been living under a rock for the last three years, Richard Gage is a member of the American Institute of Architects and the founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, 
an organization of over 1,000 accredited engineers and architects that is calling for a new investigation into the collapse of the Twin Towers and Building 7, and which has uncovered a lot of evidence suggesting that the collapse of those buildings was in fact not gravitational-induced fire-related collapses, but was in fact explosive demolitions. And the AE911 Truth group at ae911truth.org is, of course, well known for their work exposing the truth about the collapses of those buildings. But recently, they have been expanding their efforts in a number of ways in trying to pressure people in positions of power to get an independent subpoena-powered investigation going. And there's been a lot of very interesting ideas being put out by AE911 Truth for action items, things that people who subscribe to their emailing list can do to actually help to affect real change in the actual world. And and that is always a good thing. So I'm very interested in these action items that AE911 Truth has been putting out recently. And for that reason, I recently had the chance to talk to Richard Gage, AIA, about AE911 Truth in general, but also these action items in particular, and how people can actually help to affect change in the system. Well, you, you mentioned the uh, the power of the AE911 uh, Truth presentation, and I can speak to that personally, having witnessed it in Kobe, Japan, last year. And it is a very uh, a very effective pr- uh, presentation, I would say. So, suffice it to say that 911 tr- uh, AE911Truth.org has been one of the most respected 911 Truth websites since its inception, and your organization remains an essential one for those who are interested in the collapse of the three buildings on 9/11. But I think as with any organization, after the initial surge in interest where it becomes, there's a, there's a point where it becomes increasingly difficult to reach out to new people on these issues. So today I want to talk about a rather innovative campaign that uh, you launched recently, uh, an email campaign to deliver six action alerts in six days to supporters of AE 9-11 Truth. And perhaps you could tell us about these action alerts and the, the types of things your organization has been doing to help promote awareness of these issues. Yes, um, we're going to Washington, D.C. Uh, once again. We were there last year. We, we met with uh, 20 different uh, offices uh, of uh, Congress members and senators, uh, including one Congress member himself. Uh, our st- constituents came to Washington, D.C. We gave the presentation. So we're asking uh, anybody who this year, there's a number of initiatives here in D.C. that we're going to be working with. This is the main one. We're asking anybody who can make an appointment on September 7th or September 8th, when we'll be there, with their congressional representative or senator, we will come and give the presentation. What we're trying to do is develop relationships with the science advisors uh, for these congresspersons. Um, and this is, our, this is a longer-term goal. where We realize that we're in this for the long term. And uh, if we do have a presentation with a staffer, we want to be elevated to the science advisor. We have met with some science advisors, uh, and, and each in, in one in particular is in complete agreement with us that Building 7 is a controlled demolition. This is a huge problem, and um, he is going to, has been working on his, uh, his congressperson, who's his boss. Um, and we're trying to develop the relationship so that when the time comes, and there is more political support for these congressmen so that they're not just sticking their necks out calling for a new 9-11 investigation uh, and, and 
they've got to have the support or it's suicide for them politically. Um, so, and, and perhaps otherwise too, uh, in a sense. So uh, that's one of the things that we're going to be doing. Uh, September 7th and 8th, appointments with congressional uh, members. On September 9th, we have a major press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Uh, this will be modeled after our San Francisco press conference that we had in, on February 19th, in which we uh, announced that we have 1,000 architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. This is a story that has to be dealt with by the mainstream media. We have the findings uh, of uh, nanothermitic composite uh, explosive or pyrotechnics found throughout the World Trade Center dust. That is a story that has to be dealt with by the mainstream media. And there's a number of other uh, related stories that we'll be coming out with and, and sharing as well. So that's the press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. That will be immediately followed by a mock debate uh, in which we will be taking answers from uh, people who have not uh, uh, been willing to come and, and debate us, but we, they will be there, represented, um, their images, and we will uh, answer their questions that we believe that they have for us. More importantly, we will be asking of them uh, questions that uh, they and why they are not there to answer them, uh, questions that emanate from the works that they have uh, published and the, the words that they have stated publicly uh, that make no sense uh, in support of the official story. Uh, people like uh, James Miggs uh, from Popular Mechanics and his sidekick, and uh, also uh, the, Sean Thunder and John Gross from NIST uh, will be uh, represented uh, by proxy, and uh, we'll also have uh, Michael Shermer from Skeptics Magazine, um, Dave Thomas, who refused to be there, um, from uh, uh, New Mexico, uh, oh, NMSR, New Mexicans for Science and Research, I think it is. Uh, we debated Dave Thomas uh, on Saturday night uh, for four hours, and I encourage your viewers and listeners to uh, tune in and, and see how a physicist can just try to defend the free fall collapse of a major skyscraper uh, without the use of explosives. Uh, I don't think uh, that uh, he did very well. He, he's obviously um, lying through his teeth, and I think we exposed that relative also to the molten metal found and the iron microspheres and the nanothermitic composites. Uh, as well as the collapse of the Twin Towers. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we pointed out in, in each case in that debate, I felt uh, uh, why the official story makes no sense, and I don't think that it was defended very well at all. Um, but I encourage your listeners to look at that. Uh, go to 911blogger.com, uh, and uh, you'll see the coast-to-coast uh, -coast AM radio debate. Three million listeners were, were there. Anyway, we'll have this mock debate immediately following the 1 o'clock press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., uh, again, in, in a different kind of a unique and uh, informative and hopefully entertaining uh, as well format. And we uh, anticipate having uh, uh, the press there uh, for that as well. Then we go up, uh, well, in addition to that, 
uh, at that press conference, we want con to have con supporters from uh, around the world concurrently giving the same press conference, that is to say, reading the five-minute uh, press release uh, in front of their congressmen and representatives around the world um, uh, on September 9th. So we're asking uh, each of your listeners who support us um, to, to uh, email us at congressionaloutreachteam at ae911truth.org. Congressionaloutreachteam at ae911truth.org. And let us know that you want to participate by having a five-minute press conference outside the representative's office on public property. Well, hopefully, we'll have an AE 9 Truth banner uh, behind you or in front of you to give some recognition. And uh, we, we do hope that there will be 100 around uh, the world. Uh, we had 49 around the world um, uh, last February. Okay, the next action alert <laughs> after that uh, in requests the same group of people to go and make an appointment with your congressional rep during September or early October when they're on break home campaigning for your vote. And we want you to go in there, make an appointment with their science advisor if possible. Uh, or them uh, uh, would be great uh, if you can get to them. Uh, a staffer, okay. We can, we can elevate uh, up the ladder after you convince the staffer that there's a serious issue here relative to national security. We want you to show the 10-minute Blueprint for Truth uh, presentation about Building 7. We're educating our congressional reps about Building 7 in particular. And of course, that uh, DVD is available on our website. Uh, you can download it. You can probably easier to, and, and necessary perhaps to purchase uh, at least the uh, enveloped version of the DVD uh, so that's easy to play. So that's educating congressmen all across the country. Uh, make an appointment, take it in, play it, introduce yourself, introduce the 25,000 years of uh, structural and, and building and technical experience that these 1,260 architects and engineers have collectively, um, and uh, let us know how it goes. There's another action alert, James. It's the, it's the, it's the initiative to get the 60-minute Blueprint for Truth, Architecture of Destruction, on every public access station across the country. Uh, this will uh, enable, uh, if, if we succeed, 700 stations, even if uh, only 100 people watch each showing, and that's easy to do, um, we could have 70,000 people being exposed to 9-11 Truth each month. So that's our goal, and we can't do it unless everybody takes responsibility, goes to the store, gets the 58-minute DVD, and if you, you can't afford it, email us at publicoutreach at ae911truth.org, and we will mail you the DVD to play on your public access station for free. Uh, just email us, publicoutreachteam, excuse me, publicoutreachteam at ae911truth.org. Uh, so finally, uh, the, the latest action alert in this series is our AE 9-11 Truth action groups. So we're organizing action groups across the country to, to uh, effect uh, uh, coordinated actions 
for for public um, and uh, media and congressional uh, uh, education. So, if you go to our website and click uh, "Take Action" and then "Action Groups," what you'll see is uh, a way that you can, with just two to twelve uh, of your friends, uh, you can form yourself an AE9 Lemon Truth Action Group. There's no fee uh, to us. Um, we do ask that you get a meetup site going. I think they have a small monthly fee, and uh, we will have a monthly uh, action group conference call where we will then, all the facilitators from all of the action groups across the world will meet monthly and coordinate actions. We'll be doing actions such as educating architects and engineers, i.e. emailing them, campaigns to email them, bring them DVDs, uh, local architect engineering offices, uh, putting up billboards like we have done recently in San Luis Obispo, uh, we might, uh, on a particular month, go out on the street and hand out DVDs in front of skyscrapers uh, and brochures that warn people, is your skyscraper safe? Um, and let them know that uh, on 9-11, uh, with just a few small fires, the, building, the entire building came down in six and a half seconds. Um, we uh, may also do other actions like freeway blogging. Um, and uh, whatever people come up with, um, we, we feel that there's uh, much more media clout when an organized action happens all across the country. Uh, we, can, uh, we can get attention, and, and uh, they'll report us. So, so I think that covers our uh, foray of action alerts that we've sent out, and hopefully it clarifies them as well. The Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth can be found at ae911truth.org, and the advertising campaign for raising awareness of Building 7 can be found at buildingwhat.org. And of course, both organizations require donations and funding to help continue spreading the word about 9-11 Truth. So I would ask my listeners, if they are in a position to do so, to go to those websites, check out the information, make sure that th those are websites whose ideals and aims you support, and then support them with your monetary funds if you have them. But, of course, money is not the only way to help support 9-11 Truth, and it's not even necessarily the most important or the most effective way. And so this is something that grassroots political activists have known for quite some time and have demonstrated time and time again. And that is also, of course, true in the 9-11 Truth Movement. Of course, there have been numerous groups that have sprung up advocating 9-11 Truth and handing out free DVDs. In fact, as Sander Hicks once said on the Corbett Report when I was talking to him, the uh, historians of the future might see the free DVD as the political revolutionary t tool of our age. There are just so many people out there that are handing out information person to person on, on the street that it really is creating a change in our society. And who can say how many of those people who are waking up to 9-11 Truth are doing so because they were once handed randomly a DVD about this information? Well, people who would know about that are obviously the activists involved in that work, and some of the activists who have been involved for quite some time are Truth Action Ottawa, a group working out of the Canadian capital of Ottawa, Canada, and they've been doing this since April 2007. On the 11th of every month, 
of every single month since April 2007. They've been on the streets handing out DVDs. And even in that time, those three years, they have, have seen an incredible growth in the acceptance and welcoming nature of the uh, Ottawa people towards their actions. And more and more people in the Ottawa area are waking up as a result of that. And they've even managed to hand out some of their DVDs to people like uh, uh, former Prime Minister Joe Clark. So they're definitely doing some excellent work over there. And it was recently my honor to talk to Mark Young and Victor Cowenberg about Truth Action Ottawa and their latest campaign to encourage other 9-11 Truth Action groups to get out on the streets on September 11th and hand out at least 911 DVDs on this September 11th anniversary, as Truth Action Ottawa is going to do. So let's listen to an excerpt from that interview with Mark Young and Victor Cowenberg of Truth Action Ottawa. Well, Mark Young, let's start with you. If I'm not mistaken, you were the founder of Truth Action Ottawa, so tell us a little bit about the group and its history. Well, um, basically we started out, or I started out, um, it all started for me on um, April 9, 2007, I watched a video, a three-minute edit of a video called The Third Stage, and it was talking about the 11th of Every Month campaign and uh, come out and join us if you know what's going on in your city, represent on the 11th. So uh, this was two days before April 11th, so I burned 50 discs and I stepped out onto the street and I handed them out. And that's basically how it started, and what I've done is I've maintained every month since April of 2007 we've gone out so um so without fail rain or, rain or shine winter summer didn't matter um and it's pretty interesting because over the last three years we've had uh, you know our ups and downs we've seen all sorts of different things we've been in many locations in ottawa and most recently victor can tell you the story um one of our last discs that went out last month on the 11th went to a former prime minister of canada he was actually walking Right by, I'll let Victor tell the story. It's um, yeah, it was it was literally our last disc of the night, and uh, uh, another one of our members was just about to hand it to someone when I spotted uh, uh, Joe Clark, uh, one of the former prime ministers of Canada, and uh, uh, I, I literally snatched it out of his hands, and uh, and and uh, gave it to Mr. Clark. And uh, um, now Joe Clark is is. For a politician, an incredibly friendly guy, and and uh, actually stopped to talk to us for a little bit, which was uh, uh, which was really nice. Uh, I'd met him before. Um, just being in Ottawa, you sometimes run into people like this, and uh, yeah, it was literally our last disc of the night. So it just goes to show: always, always hang out until the end. You never know what's going to happen. We've seen um, uh, who's that other guy we saw on in front of Parliament. Uh, I'm drawing a blank right now. Oh, um, the head of the uh, uh, Native Rights Groups, yeah. Yeah, um, Phil Fontaine. <laughs> Phil Fontaine, yes. We see, we saw him, too. He got our disc. Um, we've uh, got some media coverage over the last couple of years, but basically what we've done is we've maintained that in Ottawa, on the 11th, if you do know what's going on, tell somebody or come out and join us. We've handed out DVDs. Uh, we started out with about 50 a month. And now, on average, it's always 300 a month, and we've been doing 300 a month for probably a year and a half now, easily, or maybe even two years. Um, so we've given out a lot of discs now. This next one is, of course, September 11th, the ninth anniversary. 
um, Victor had a fantastic idea, and he posted about it, and it's already been picked up by a couple of We Are Change chapters, um, but I'm going to let Victor tell that one. Uh, we've really uh, just been focusing on keeping the message going, and if not for people like us, the CBC would not have posted a piece on the Fifth Estate uh, about the 9-11 Truth Movement with Richard Gage in it. They would not have done that if we hadn't have been out on the street every month. Not us personally. I mean people across Canada doing the uh, truth actions every month or going out whenever and just um, keeping the message going. There's people in Edmonton, all across Canada. We've got people uh, that are going out. Um, and Kitchener. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. Kitchener uh, from Halifax to Vancouver. We've got There's actually a new one in Moncton now. Great. Yeah, so uh, so the the fight's not over by any means. And uh, Victor, do you want to go ahead and tell uh, what you've uh, what you came up with? Well, what happened was uh, uh, September the 11th was uh, was fast coming upon us, and and we had some plans that that uh, didn't quite work out. Um, so I, I just had a brainstorm. I thought, well, you know, what's our what's our strong point? And and obviously our strong point is handing out discs. Uh, so I thought, well, let's just hand out a whole lot of discs, and and you know, 911 may not seem like a lot for some big cities like New York or Los Angeles, but uh, here in Ottawa, that's that's a huge number of discs to hand out, and it's um, you know, being that it's a Saturday, we can show up sort of well, we're we're showing up uh, outside of Ottawa's busiest mall at uh, at one o'clock in the afternoon, and we're just going to hand out discs until they're gone. It'll probably take us uh, four to six hours. And uh, basically, while I was writing up the the, uh, the write-up for our website about it, I thought, well, maybe I'll just throw in a challenge to see if there's other truth groups around uh, around the world that that might want to do the same kind of thing. You know, we, maybe we can we can multiply this. Um, and uh, so I, I added, uh, you know, on Facebook and on and our on our website with a few emails as well, just to see if I could get some other groups interested in it and. Uh, there has been a bit of, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, interest in it. A couple of We Are Change chapters, um, um, one in Birmingham and the other one in the States. Somewhere I've, I, I, the name escapes me at the moment, but uh, uh, there are two We Are Change chapters that have signed on, and 9-11 uh, uh, Truth News picked it up. So, uh, you know, the, the idea is out there, and, and hopefully some, uh, some more people will, uh, you know, take up the call and, and, you know, just go big. I mean, a lot of truthers are going to be in New York City on the, on the 10th anniversary, so... Um, we should make the ninth anniversary as big as possible in our hometowns. Truth Action Ottawa can be found at truthactionottawa.com, and I highly encourage and challenge 9-11 truth groups in other areas of other countries to join in the 9-11 on 9-11 campaign and implement it in your area. Well, one of the groups that has been well-known for 9-11 Truth Street act- Action and Activism is We Are Change. And again, for anyone living under a rock for the last several years, We Are Change is a group of political, uh, grassroots political activists who have come together first in New York City and then gradually in other chapters around the world to help spread truth, awareness, and information on some of these extremely important subjects. And they have, over the years, become well-known for their confrontations of various individuals, such as their confrontations with Vicente Fox, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, or Jay Rockefeller, or Al Gore. But they are also, of course, a 
an organization that is very much dedicated to raising awareness about the truth about 9-11, with many of the We Are Changed New York City chapter members actually having lost friends or relatives in the events of 9-11. Well, recently I had the chance to talk to Luke Rakowski, the founder of We Are Change, about this year's 9-11 9th anniversary events. As some of you may know, We Are Change always puts on a ninth, uh, an, an anniversary event that will feature speakers, street actions, street vigils, and sometimes musical guests as well. And this year's lineup also promises to be extremely interesting with speakers like Richard Gage and Paul Craig Roberts and Cynthia McKinney and Annie Michon and Jason Burmis and many, many, many others, some well-known in the 9-11 Truth communities, others that have as far as I'm aware, not spoken at 9-11 Truth events before, so it should be an extremely interesting lineup. And that's why I was interested to have uh, Luke Rakowski on to talk about this year's anniversary events, which are going under the name Our Lives Post-9-11. And of course, more information can be found at wearechange.org. But right now, let's listen to a short extract from my interview with Luke Rakowski of We Are Change. All right. Well, it is it is great to have you here, and it's especially great to have you here at this time of year because I'm sure most of my listeners know that every year We Are Change puts on just an incredible series of events for, uh, to commemorate the uh, the anniversary of the 9/11 attacks and to try to help raise and spread awareness of 9/11 truth, which um, really is one of the fundamental goals of so many different organizations, including We Are Change. So, tell us uh, what's going on in New York City for the ninth anniversary of 9/11 coming up uh, next weekend. This year, just like every year, we are changing. Patriots and great American citizens flock to New York City from all around the world to pretty much take back New York City, to take back our government, our system of life, our way of life. And uh, every year, we raise money for sick and dying, not 11 first responders. We do street actions every single day. We do events every single day. And a lot of people who attend our events say it's a life-changing event, and it really is. This year, we're pulling out all the stops to have a huge anniversary in order to make the 10th year anniversary even bigger. Uh, we're planning for the 10th year, but we're building this ninth year up as big as, as we can, and that's why we have amazing speakers from all around the world coming to New York City, and uh, this is an event for the history books, really. Well, that's right. There is uh, quite a lineup, so tell people about some of the people who are going to be attending. I mean, we have people like George Galloway who said that they would come, Anthony Schaefer, Cynthia McKinney, Ray McGovern, Mike Rebell. Cindy Sheehan, William Rodriguez, Annie Michon, Wayne Madsen, uh, Jason Burmis, Ben Stewart, Gary Franchi, Richard Gage, Michael Parente, Ralph Showman, Kevin Ryan, Niels Herrick from Copenhagen, Paul Craig Roberts, Colleen Riley, Danny Schechter, Catherine Albright, victims, family members, not alone rescue workers, and so many more are going to be speaking at our events here in New York City. So really, we got an amazing, amazing lineup, and I hope people can join us. And if you're not in the tri-state area, can't come to New York City. We're going to have a live pay-per-view event, which the proceeds are going to go to first responders as well. And you can watch everything for about ten dollars. Four days of events, four days of street actions. You can watch everything on pay-per-view on the internet on WeAreChange.org. Information on this year's lineup of events for the 9/11 anniversary weekend can be found at WeAreChange.org. Now, as you may have heard us discussing in that clip, all of the proceeds for this year's events, and indeed all of the anniversary events put on by We Are Change, go to the 9-11 first responders who are now sick and dying, and in some cases dead, 
because of the lies, the admitted and proven lies of the EPA and the White House about the quality of the air at Ground Zero. Tragically, these heroes of 9-11 have been neglected by the very government that has consigned them to such horrible, lingering deaths. And their stories are still largely unsung in the mainstream media, so many people still don't know about the plight of the 9-11 first responders. My name is David Miller. On September 11, 2001, along with hundreds of my fellow troops, I went to Ground Zero. No one asked us. No orders were given. We went because our city, our country, our neighbors were under attack. And we knew what to do. Or at least we thought we did. Anybody with uh, half a brain would probably look at that cloud and say, this can't be good for you. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you're called to war, you don't say, well, I'm not going in there, you just go. But what exactly was in that burning pile where the World Trade Center once stood? According to final studies later published by the EPA and other government agencies, a devastating toxic soup containing more than 2,500 contaminants. You see two 110-story buildings collapse, and nothing's more than small little pieces. Uh, where did the asbestos go? Where did all the concrete dust go? Where did all the fiberglass go? Where did all this go? And anybody could see that it went into the air. You couldn't stop. You'd cough for like five minutes straight. You just couldn't stop coughing. You know, you'd try to fight it back, and it would just come. And this is the upper pen that I carry. If I have an asthma attack and I'm not by uh, medication, I have to jab it into my thigh so I can get some relief. I was sick immediately. I spent uh, three days in Jamaica Hospital after 9-11 because I kept on having asthma attack after asthma attack. We'd go out and with rakes and shovels and stuff and just go through all the debris looking for you know body parts and different things of that sort to uh, make identifications. The, the weird thing was it was very cold when we were up there. I believe it was it was in the middle of the winter, but the ground wasn't frozen. The ground kind of like bubbled underneath your feet, which was kind of strange to me. That can't be healthy. You know, you're coughing a lot. I mean, for days after, we're coughing up blood and different things like that. After 9-11, I developed a cough, nasal congestion, congestion burning in my ears really bad, and I really never thought about it. I went to the doctors. I tried not to go out sick. And then I went on vacation in 2004 with my family, uh, and I came back to my 40th birthday. They told me I had a mass in my chest. And I'm not crying for myself. I cry for my family because I'm worried about them being without me. and the government turned their back on us. Please help us now. The federal government has still not assisted me and the thousands of other rescue workers. 
The federal government two weeks ago cut 100, 100 million dollars from the budgets for health care. And that is a disgrace. It's despicable that they would do that to us. I have a much more limited lifespan. And so do somewhere around 40,000 other rescue workers. But how many New Yorkers were also exposed? Where did all that dust from the roofs go? This could be one of the greatest public health disasters in history. Christy Todd Whitman testified in front of Congress that the air was safe. Is that why when I had a lung test two weeks ago, they found black fluid in my left lung? Is that why my right lung is full of blood right now? Is that why I take 18 medications because the air was safe? That's my roommate. That's his medication, 26 pills a day. He's an NYPD. I call him Skittles as a nickname, you know. Certainly, 9-11 Truth is a natural ally of the 9-11 first responders. Regardless of how the attacks were perpetrated, or by whom, or for what purpose, everyone can agree that the 9-11 first responders represent the heroes of that day, people who were willing to risk their lives for their fellow brothers and sisters who died on that day. And many of the people who managed to live and escape from the World Trade Center and other areas are because of the valiant and tireless efforts of these first responders on that day and in the weeks that followed the grim task of discovering and removing the bodies from the scene. So obviously the 9-11 first responders deserve much, much greater respect than they are being given by a government that has been perfectly content to sweep their stories under a rug in the interest of maintaining their bottom line in these economic times. They don't want to pay the money for the 9-11 first responders' bills. And, and here we stand nine years later with failed legislation coming up and being voted down time and again to actually get health care for these 9-11 first responders. It is a lamentable state of affairs, and it's one that the 9-11 truth movement has within its power to alter People can actually make a difference with this topic simply by helping the 9-11 first responders who are currently sick and dying. It is not rocket science, it's very simple. And in that regard, it's important that we understand the groups that are out there attempting to A, raise awareness, and B, actually help those dying first responders. One of those groups, and one that has made a great impact, is the Feel Good Foundation, started by John Feel, one of the first responders himself. And it involves getting a medical aid and attention, and also raising awareness for the first responders. And it was my great honor to speak recently with Anthony Flamia, the Community Outreach Director for the Feel Good Foundation, and someone who is dedicating his life to helping the first responders. So let's listen to an excerpt from that conversation where I talked to Anthony Flamia of the Feel Good Foundation about how people can help the first responders. 
This is James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. It's currently the 18th of August, 2010, and I'm talking to Anthony Flemia, the Community Outreach Director for the Feel Good Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to spreading awareness of the health effects on 9-11 first responders and ground zero workers, which can be found at feelgoodfoundation.com. That's F-E-A-L, feelgoodfoundation.com. Mr. Flemia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yes, hi. I'm very much glad to speak with you all uh, about the Feel Good Foundation Hour and our current missions. Excellent. Well, for those listeners who may not be familiar with the Feel Good Foundation and its work, why don't you tell us about uh, the organization and its history? Uh, the Feel Good Foundation was created several years ago by John Feel. Uh, it is a nonprofit organization geared towards uh, helping responders, the police officers, the firefighters, the construction workers, and any of the volunteers uh, for any of the 9-11 illnesses or anything, any type of uh, assistance that need as a result of the World Trade Center uh, attacks and uh, all their health problems thereafter. That's right. And although it shouldn't need to be told, unfortunately, the, the media has done just such a terrible and abysmal job of keeping people informed about this issue. Some people still don't really understand the health effects that are, are plaguing 9-11 first responders and ground zero workers. Uh, tell us a little bit about the types of health problems that people are suffering from. Well, right off the bat, uh, the uh, right off the bat, when uh, responders like myself, uh, as a police officer and firefighters and all the other people were down there initially, uh, when the buildings collapsed, there was a uh, a large amount of dust, as you know, uh, that was dispersed into the air by the collapse of the buildings. Uh, there was a statement made by uh, uh, the EPA person. Uh, Mrs. Whitman, that the air was safe. Uh, basically, everybody just basically did not, uh, you know, take heed to that, and they, they basically ignored it and went forward, and uh, and went through the rescue and recovery operations as if nothing was said. But you know, we did it because we had to do it. We had to do it as a country, and we had to do it to, to save people. Uh, a lot of people are coming down with uh, a lot of the severe sinus illnesses. Uh, sinusitis, allergic rhinitis, uh, chronic uh, chronic lung, pro- lung problems, reactive airway disease. Uh, a lot of uh, now right right now there's a lot of bloodborne cancers coming out uh, from this. Uh, you have a lot of gastrointestinal diseases that are coming out. Uh, Post traumatic stress still is continuing to come out uh, very many years later. Uh, because of uh, because of what happened, right? So, about how how many re- first responders are we talking about here? First responders. Well, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm I'm in the range of forty to fifty thousand people uh, that basically were first responders, and first responders are the people that that are the police officers, the firefighters, the construction workers, the volunteers. The people that basically, you know, your nurses, your doctors, uh, a wide range of uh, just basically people helping out, uh, volunteer firefighters from, you know, across uh, the United States, firefighters from across the United States, police officers. You know, we had a, a worldwide, uh, actually United States-wide response, actually a worldwide response as well. 
That's right. And just given the, the, the unquestionable nature, heroic nature of the people who, who did heed the call and, and contributed in those terrible days and weeks in the aftermath of what happened at, nine, in, at Ground Zero and 9-11, it's just almost unthinkable that those people could be so completely abandoned by their government and left to basically die of diseases that are directly attributable, attributable to what they were doing at that time. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's played out over the last several years and how we've arrived at the point we have today. Well, basically, as you know, as you know right now, we've, in, in addition to all the people tragically lost on that day, we have uh, over 900 responders that, are di- that have died. Uh, we have a, a lot of people right now that are sick and dying from the cancers, from the from all the effects of the uh, the World Trade Center uh, attacks from the dust, and people are still dying, people are still struggling, people aren't able to work, pe- people aren't able to sustain uh, sustain a daily living. They have to rely on any savings they had or any health insurance they had. Uh, if if they've been awarded workers' compensation, they have to rely on that. I have uh, there's, an, there's an individual right now I'm working with uh, who works for the, the local railroad, and uh, he was affected for six months. He used up all his vacation time and all his sick time so he could get better because of the World Trade Center. He was sent down there uh, with the New York National Guard. Unfortunately, his employer tried to fire him, and they want him. You know, they they wanted him back at work. They were actually trying to fire him. He had to sue to get back on his regular job, but he was sent down there by the National Guard, and he, thank God, he got back on the job. He only had 15 years in the job. He wasn't reaching maximum retirement age at that point, so he had to go back to work. Uh, he can't collect. He can collect Social Security. He can collect the workers' comp, but it's not going to be enough as to what his current employer is paying uh, to support his family. That's right, and perhaps the most tragic thing about that is that that's not a unique case. There are so many people who are suffering similarly. And uh, and so talk about the, the government's response to this and what kind of action or inaction we've seen from, from the House from this. The government's reaction, reaction has been rather slow, uh, and it's been slow. As you know, we've been fighting for this for the past eight years, and... I blame it on both the Democrats and the Republicans for for doing their stand-up shows and uh, you know their posturing and uh, the Democrats and Republicans fighting. It they just can't seem to agree on this thing. There's one thing that I can be certain of is that we need help. We need the long-term monitoring. The long-term monitoring will give us 10 years of health coverage and also a monetary benefit as well. Uh, we need this. We can't keep on going back down to Washington. To, to lobby on a yearly basis for these benefits. Uh, and I'd like to also say that this is a national issue. We had a national response. This is a national issue with people from all over the United States. There is a national monitoring program set up for responders, and it's just not a New York, New Jersey local problem. Absolutely not. So uh, tell us about the latest uh, bill that was just shot down known as the Zadroga Act and, and the political wrangling that went on over that. Yes, right now that's HRA 47, and that bill right now was put uh, in front of, in front of uh, Congress as a suspension bill. And that was done at fault 
uh, because of the Democrats and Republicans fighting. And the Democrats knew going into it it was going to be it was going to fail. The Republicans weren't going to vote for the approval, and it was just basically a, you know a screaming match. I mean, I might I have to also add that on the Democrat and Republican side, it was done with a lot of passion. The presentation was done with a lot of passion. There are people that agree that 9-11 responders need to help, uh, and the disagreements are is that how they're going to pay for it, you know, who's posturing, where, where is the money, go- where is the money going to go, where's the healthcare going to go, and you know, there's a lot of lot, lot of fighting uh, going on, and and uh, like one of the uh, local congressmen said, if you if you believe it's yes, you vote yes. If you believe it's no, vote no. This is something that we need. Right. It's so it's so despicable, really, to see political wrangling and posturing going on over something that everyone does agree is so important. So um, for people out there that are that are concerned about the 9-11 first responders and want to pitch in in some way, what what do you think is the best way for out people out there to get involved? Call your local congressman, call your local people, let them know that H.R. 847 is a must. I could I could tell you that every state in the United States was represented down at ground zero. I remember people from Tennessee. I remember people from Florida, California, Texas. I remember a, you know, a United States response. It was a phenomenal response and it was actually very heartwarming for, for me and a lot of the guys I worked with in NYPD uh, to see the response, to see the help. Uh, I even saw some, uh, some teams, some uh, rescue and search teams from overseas from certain from, from certain uh, continents that were there uh, doing search and rescue. So, you know, it, it was also an international response. That's right. Well, how about uh, monetary support? Who should people be giving money to if they, if they want to try to help some of the first responders? There's a lot of great organizations out there right now. Uh, there's only a few viable ones. Uh, the Feel Good Foundation is www.feelgood.com. Feel good. It's F E A L G O O D Foundation.com. There's also another organization called Tuesday's Children.org. Very good organization. There's Voices of 9/11. Uh, there's actually the Police Aid Foundation as well that uh, specifically helps uh, the first responders, uh, police officers as well. Uh, those are the viable organiz- organizations right now out there that that do a lot uh, for the 9/11 community. Absolutely. Well, as we're approaching the, the ninth anniversary of, of those terrible events, uh, what can you say about where, where the Feel Good Foundation and where the first responders will be going from here in order to continue trying to get justice for what happened on that day? We are still fighting for the rights of 9-11 responders going forward. We will not stop until H.R. 847 is passed. We are going back down to Washington in September. If it is not passed in September, we will still go forward. We will still be out there helping responders well after this year and also next year on the 10th anniversary. We are there as the Feel Good Foundation to help the responders of 9-11. Well, I know that the uh, the hearts of my listeners go out to all of you that are suffering from this and uh, just... Uh, Absolutely, keep hanging hanging in there, and I'm sure that uh, that people will be able to to come through in the end. But uh, absolutely, this is life and death for for people right now. So I certainly hope that the listeners will be motivated to get out there and to help make a difference. So Anthony Flamia, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Uh, Feelgoodfoundation.com. Uh, thanks once again for being on the program. Thank you very much.
I would once again urge my listeners and viewers to go to feelgoodfoundation.com or to the website of any of the organizations that are providing support for the 9-11 first responders and donate whatever resources you have, whatever you can spare to benefit those who, are, who have laid their lives on the line to save those on 9-11. Well, what ending is possible to a program such as this? Perhaps no ending is possible because we are not at an end point. Right now, the scales of justice continue to hang in the balance, and if they tip one way, then the establishment wins, and 9-11 truth becomes nothing other than the field of JFK conspiracy research, something that, again, the vast majority of the public are aware is true, but for which there is really less and less likelihood with each passing day of any true justice coming to the perpetrators of that attack. Or, if the scales tip the other way, 9-11 truth wins. There is an independent subpoena-powered investigation, and people are brought to trial, put under oath, and brought to justice for their actions or lack thereof on that day. 9-11 truth, again, is the issue for ending the wars, the aggression, the hatred, the violence, and the terror that has come from the government over the past nine years. And if 9-11 truth is successful, we can convert the world from one of anger, hatred, and fear one of truth, liberty, and justice. Which side do you stand on? This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 145 of the Corbett Report. You are being gamed.